This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our cards for this week are Benito Santiago, or listed on all four of his cards, Benny Santiago. We have card number 7, card number 404, card number 693, and card number 699. This is a record breaker episode, just like the record breaker card we'll talk about. Four card, a quad ep. This is unheard of, unheralded, unspoken of. Incredible, incredible episode coming up with Benito Santiago. And this is a recommendation from a listener. This player was suggested by friend of the pod, at Tim Briggs here on Twitter. He sent a list of his childhood favorites and a list of players that he was excited to, to hear us talk about, which included some really good names. But one player in that list jumped out at me because he is really overrepresented in the 88 top set. And that is Benito Santiago, four cards in the set. I'm not sure. We've done a three-card episode before. We've done a two-player episode. But four cards is it's a lot of card. To have the base card, the all-star card, the team leaders card, record breaker card, all with very different looks and different stats. And so I'm very excited to get into all of these. This is also fitting for Benito because 1987 was his biggest year as a major leaguer in his 20-year major league career. And 1987 was a really just a monumental year for him and what looked like the start of a, a, a Hall of Fame career that had some ups and downs and Benito had some ups and downs in his story as well. We will get to all of that, but first let's take a look at the front of the base card, which is 693. David, this is a really great looking card. This is one of the most artistic and emotion inspiring cards I think that we've seen. This has a very artistic look of Santiago in the dugout holding a bat in front of the bat rack and looking at his bat. He's not posing for the camera. He's been kind of caught unawares and also seeing almost his whole body. But this looks like a magazine cover. It looks like an actual artistic shot rather than many of these baseball cards, which are just, hey, here's this guy's face. This is an seemingly unposed shot. looks like he's maybe, uh, as you said, it looks like he's unaware of the photographer. We have shots of guys in the dugout that are posed or we have action shots of players on the mound. This looks like Benito is getting set up to walk out of the dugout. It's almost a relaxed look. I don't know. There's there's something very neat about this and, and something very candid versus the either in-game playing or the weird J-baller set up on a minor league field somewhere in South Florida. Uh, interesting note on this card. Benito's wearing the pinstripe... Padres jerseys. I do like the brown and orange helmet. I don't love this Padres uniform with Padres written in kind of bubbly script across the front of it, but he has the initials R-A-K on his sleeve. These are the initials of the former Padres owner Ray Kroc, the also former owner and CEO of McDonald's, 
who once hopped on the Padres PA and apologized for, quote, the most stupid baseball playing I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) We'll include a link to that story in the show notes about Ray Kroc uh, lambasting his team on the PA system. Ray passed away in 1984, and this is a 1988 card. The team wore those initials on the sleeve until 1986. So this is an old picture taken even the year prior to what we normally see on these Topps cards, which are 87 pictures. And you can find out all about Ray Kroc in my other podcast, Filet-O-Pod. So one thing on the front of this card, David, that is kind of surprising to me is the name. I've only thought of this player being named Benito Santiago, I don't recall him ever being named Benny or referred to as Benny. And this card calls him Benny Santiago. And in fact, all of the cards in the set do. What's up with that? (laughs) Matt, that's a really good question. And I looked into that a little bit and couldn't really find the answer. Other cards in 1988 had him listed as Benito, Don Russ, Diamond King's card had him as Benito Santiago. Even later Topps cards had him listed as Benito. But all of the cards in eighty in 88, all of the Topps cards, have him as Benny. And even some later into the 2000s have him listed as Benny. So I think that this may have been an early nickname that was given to him. But I think for the sake of this podcast, I'll call him Benito. That sounds good to me. It always sounded better anyway. As so often happens, there is a, a great Saber bio. Thank you to Thomas Brown Jr. for this Benito Santiago Saber bio that provided a great framework for the podcast today. Now flipping to the back of the card for 693, we have Benito Santiago, height 6'1", weight 185, right-handed batter and thrower. Signed by the Padres as a free agent in 1982, Born March 9, 1965 in Ponce, Puerto Rico, with a home in Isabel, Puerto Rico. Ponce, Puerto Rico is in the middle of Puerto Rico on the south coast, and it's the second largest city in Puerto Rico after San Juan. Benito was born into a very poor family. His father, Jose, drove a truck and delivered goods from San Juan to Ponce. He wore a ship captain's hat when he drove and was called El Capitan, and Benito's life could have gone very differently due to an incident that happened when he was three months old. His father's truck slid off the road. As it was sliding off the road, Jose fell out of the truck to free himself from the crash. And because he was poor and didn't have access to good medical care, he didn't go to the hospital right away because he didn't have any money for medicine or, or treatment. And he only went to the hospital when he was sick beyond help. At that point, little Benito is staying with his sister. His mother had five other children and could not care for another child. While Jose was in the hospital, he saw Nelita Gonzalez. And Nelita and her husband Modesto were building a house in Santa Isabel, not far from Ponce. And El Capitan would deliver concrete to them. He told Nelita that his last wish was for her and her husband to take care of Benito. Modesto said that he didn't want any more kids. Their youngest child at that point was 13, and he couldn't deal with a three-month-old baby. When she explained that this was his dying wish, he had to relent. 
Jose passes away one when Benny is three months old. Nolita and Modesto take care of, of Benito. They're not wealthy people, but they were in a better situation than Benito's mother. And Benito says that they saved his life. Up until he's 10 years old, he calls them mom and dad. And at that point, his birth mother comes to the Gonzalez house and says, it's time for Benito to come live with me. Benito at this time is sad and confused. He, does, he only knows this family. A judge gets involved and asks him where he wants to go live, either with the mother who brought him into the world or the family who, in his words, taught him to live and gave him love and understanding. And he chose to live with the Gonzalez family. In that process, he learns that he has other siblings on the Santiago side. One was a guy in town named Jose, and Benito learned that this was his brother. And Jose knew that Benito was better off with this other family than with his mother. Benito didn't regret this decision, and even his brother knew that this was the right decision for him to to stay with the Gonzalez family. It's a very difficult story and a very difficult situation for a kid to be put in. Benito said that if the Gonzalez family hadn't taken him in, he probably would have ended up living on the street. He also later said that without baseball, he would have lived a, a much different and, and much worse quality of life. He started out playing a shortstop and he had a good arm. And he didn't play catcher until he was a teenager because the starting catcher for his team didn't show up to a game. He didn't initially want to play catcher. He kind of told the coach, are, are you crazy? I don't want to get back there and get hit with foul balls. But he played well enough throughout some base runners. His coach told him to keep at it because it would be easier for him to make it as a professional ball player as a catcher than as a shortstop. He also was a pretty good pitcher. He said that as a young player, he had a few no-hitters, and he liked playing pitcher and liked being the center of attention, and catcher also allowed him to be the center of attention. He ends up getting recognized by Luis Rosa, who ran an American Legion team in San Juan. Luis and the team offered Benny the opportunity to travel and experience more of Puerto Rico and develop as a player, and it happened that Luis was also a major league scout. At that time, he was working for the San Diego Padres. He also worked for the Mariners, Cubs, Giants, and Rangers. And that leads to the This Way to the Clubhouse, where Benito signed as a free agent with the San Diego Padres September 1st, 1982, by Scout Luis Rosa. We're coming up on the 39th anniversary of this signing. <laughs> and we do talk about scouts on this podcast and we like talking about scouts this is a less fun story about scouts luis rosa was a super agent in latin america and agents at this time had incredible power over players because there was no draft and there's also this desire to get out of desperate situations like benito had and because there was no draft players could sign for whoever offered them the best bonus but those bonuses were way lower than what a number one pick would get. And we've seen bonuses, of course, now are in the multiples of millions of dollars. But at this time, bonuses for draft picks were maybe in the fifty dollars to $100,000 range. I'm not sure what Benito's signing bonus was, but probably in the single digits of thousands of dollars. Uh, Luis signed many of baseball's best Latin American players, among them, Roberto and Sandy Alomar, Juan Gonzalez, Ivan Rodriguez, Wilson Alvarez, Ozzie Guillen. 
And later, Luis would be accused of demanding sex for advancement in the San Francisco Giants system. It was also alleged that he embezzled portions of salaries and signing bonuses. And this happened in the 90s. And at that time, a group of players, including some of those that I just mentioned, Juan Gonzalez, the Alomars, and Benito, would come to Rose's defense and say they never experienced anything like that and that, that Luis helped them in their career. This incident ended up resulting in the San Francisco Giants being subject to a civil lawsuit from some of their minor league players who had accused Luis of this. And Luis was also uh, arrested in the Dominican Republic. I was unable to find out what the end result of that was. So those were allegations and those lawsuits that went on. But truly a, a strange situation and, and a place where agents had a lot of power with signing bonuses and with taking portions of signing bonuses from players as finder's fees. So it's really troubling with players in a desperate situation. So as a kid who was nearly abandoned at three months old, and now he's going to the U.S. to make a name for himself. And his first stop is in Miami. He's 18 years old in a new city. He didn't speak any English. He said he learned through language learning tapes, teammates, and Scarface. <laughs> he said he learned stuff like, hey, man, what's happening? Hey, man, what are you looking for? Hey, man, what you doing over there? So a lot of hey, man. I, I like <laughs> it. And at Miami low A ball, he he had some challenges with the language, but he was pretty good and, and earned a promotion to Reno, raised his average 30 points, and hit 16 home runs with 83 RBIs. Double A had further improvements, a 298 average, something that we'll see throughout his career, not a lot of plate discipline. He only walked 16 times in 372 at-bats at Double A, but his 298 average earned him a spot in Triple A, so he's moving up a station every year, continues to impress at Triple A, 286, 17 home runs, 19 steals, pretty good speed for a catcher, and gets called up to the majors in September. The Padres at this point are out of contention, and Benito gets a chance to play in the big leagues. That's right, and his first game ends up against the eventual NL West champion Houston Astros. His first at-bat against Mike Scott, who would end up being the Cy Young winner, gets a double in his first at-bat, which is a good start. And then two games later, gets his first home run, which is the fun fact on the card. He belted first Major League home run, September 17th, 1986. He played well in 17 games in that initial call-up, hitting 290 and locking himself in as the Padres starter heading into 1987. And 1987 was really a huge year for him. Obviously, the 1987 stats are what get pulled for this 1988 top set. So the fact that he's on four cards shows that 1987 was just an incredible year for him, but a pretty bad one overall for the Padres. This 1987 Padres team is 65 and 97. And that takes us to the team leaders card, our second card of the day. 699 San Diego Padres, 1987 team leaders. Front of this card has Benito and Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn is wearing a windbreaker that looks like it has ripped off sleeves. <laughs> but also, Benito's arms. He looks pretty ripped. You know, they talked about him being a, a very slim player, and that was uh, a coach said that that was why he didn't get injured very much because there wasn't a lot for the ball to hit. 
<laughs> and so if he missed a pitch, it didn't bounce up into him because he is so slim. But he looks pretty strong in this picture. So the picture on the front is pretty accurate. Two of the most important guys and best performers on this 1987 team. In terms of wins above replacement, the best player was Tony Gwynn. Second was Randy Reddy. And of course, we would love to see Randy Reddy on the team leaders card, but maybe at the time, the uh, advanced stats had not caught up with the game. And then you have John Crook and Benito Santiago. When you go to the back of the card, Benito didn't lead the team in any hitting category, but we'll get to his highlights in a minute that'll show why he was on this team leaders card. On the pitching side, you have Lance McCullers. Lance McCullers' son played on the team that Ty Griffin's team beat when Ty gave his inspirational speech and threw his gold medal over the fence. <laughs> Sorry to tie, tie this back to Ty Griffin. To Ty Griffin, all right. <laughs> uh, Eric Shaw is on this team, Ed Whitson. Benito had some interesting words for the pitching staff. He said that the team's best pitcher was Goose Gossage, followed by Ed Whitson and Andy Hawkins. Other than those three, they stink. <laughs> yeah, that's uh boy, that's going to make you a lot of friends on your team if you tell the press that your pitchers stink. That's a rough start for the rookie. Uh, Benito would later say that he would sometimes say things that he didn't mean or maybe didn't mean to to come out the way that they did. And part of that was due to his command of the English language was not great at this point. And the rest of the pitchers on this team decided to punish him. They would cross up signals, throw pitches that he didn't call, refuse to talk to him if he came to the mound. And through the first 54 games of this season, the Padres were 12-42 and 42 with the worst ERA in the National League at 5.07 and the most walks. Benito at this point had 14 errors and 12 passed balls. But the pitching and Benito's defense and the team all settled in. And after that first 54-game stretch, they went around 500 for the rest of the season. Well, it's good they decided to stop punishing him by, by throwing poorly. The second half was much better than the first. He was known for that strong arm and ability to throw out base runners from his knees. And we'll include a video in the show notes from This Week in Baseball. His ability to throw out runners without even standing up it's just, it's really impressive. Uh, Tony Gwynn called one throw that got Tim Raines out, the best throw I've ever seen. But Benito said that the first half of the season, he was trying to throw everybody out and he needed to learn uh, that you have to hold the ball sometimes. At the All-Star break, he's hitting 283 with seven home runs, having a pretty good season for a rookie catcher. And we see here his All-Star National League card. So what did he do in the All-Star game? Uh, he sat at home, probably watched it on TV. <laughs> uh, he wasn't in. He was not on the All Star team. The catchers were Gary Carter, Bo Diaz, and Ozzy Virgil. But Benito got an All Star card in the 1988 top set. Yeah. So let's talk about this card. This is 404, the Benito Santiago All Star card, and this is an incredible looking card because Santiago is what 22 years old in this card. Yes. He. They've done everything they can to make him look 50 years old. <laughs> the lighting is not good. You know, the lines on his face, I think, are accentuated compared to the other cards that we've seen. The, the hair and shadowing kind of makes him look like he has a big mullet in the back, which I don't think is correct. 
Yeah, it's not doing him any favors. And then on the back of the card, it's got the 1987 National League leaders in home runs, and he's not on there. <laughs> but at the bottom, it has a fun fact about him. Benny Santiago, all-star catcher, that he set a Padre record with a hit in his 26th consecutive game, September 24th, 1987. His 34-game hitting streak in 1987 set a major league mark for catchers and broke a rookie record. So he didn't make the team, but I guess Topps is making the case that he should have been one. I think those other catchers, we talked about Ozzie Virgil, had a pretty good season, particularly in the first half. I think that this is more reflective of the end of the season and who had a notable full 1987 season versus the All-Star Game, which was reflective of the first half of the 1987 season where Ozzie Virgil and, and those other guys had a big first half. A lot of what made Benny notable in this season happened after the All-Star break. And that leads us to, to our fourth card, card number seven. This bright red card, record breaker, Benny Santiago, the blurry picture. Yeah, it's just him. It's weird that it's him at the plate, but there's no plate. It's just a red background. So he's just kind of, it's like he's in front of a green screen, or in this case, a red screen, and then you could put him anywhere. And they really did a poor cut and paste job here. There's some white space next to his legs. There's just <laughs> choppy lines by his feet. Just not not very good. It really looks like somebody just cut around the picture with an exacto knife and placed it on a red background on the back of that card santiago's 34 game hitting streak sets rookie record the former mark of 27 straight games was set by pirates jimmy williams in 1899 i do not have any jimmy williams facts this hitting streak throughout his 20-year career probably is the most notable moment and it happened in his rookie season he got a hit on August 25th, so we're after the All-Star break. Over the next 34 games, he hit 346, got a hit in every game through October 3rd. In that last game of the streak, he was 0 for 3 and then got a bunt single to, to extend the streak. In the next game, he failed to get a hit off of Oral Hirschheiser in the second-to-last game of the season. A guy who knows a thing or two about hitting, Tony Gwynn, expressed why this was so impressive. Every player but the catcher gets to rest and contemplate his next at bat. So Benito is going from behind the plate to the plate. Got to think about pitches to call. Got to think about the pitchers who you've pissed off by saying that they stink. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's He's got so much to think about. And maybe that, that helped him out because you got no time to think about your last at bat. You just have to move on to the next one. This streak has held up pretty well, where a lot of records have been broken over the last 33 years. In this case, there have only been 15 longer streaks in league history. And this is the longest streak by a rookie still, and the longest streak by a catcher in Major League history. It was also the second longest streak of the 80s after Paul Molitor's 39-game run that also took place in 1987. And this streak put him in the national headlines. It basically guaranteed that he would win Rookie of the Year. He was a unanimous selection for National League Rookie of the Year. A 300 batting average, 33 doubles, 18 home runs, and 79 RBIs earned him the Silver Slugger Award. And even more importantly, David, 
that quality performance earned him a spot in RBI baseball, which earns us a trip to visit Brian in the RBI corner. And we're back in the RBI corner, and so we welcome back Brian. Brian, good to have you to talk about Benito Santiago. Thanks for having me. Benito Santiago in RBI Baseball, he is on the National League All-Star team. Now, we covered the American League All-Star team, the Tom Hankey episode. All of you should go back and listen to that. The NL All-Star team is probably the better of the two All-Star teams. They've got power up and down the lineup, especially if you make a few key substitutions. You've got players like Tim Raines, Andre Dawson, Eric Davis, Mike Schmidt, Pedro Guerrero, all that can hit home runs. And then Reigns, Davis, and Tony Gwynn can really run too. They're pretty similar to Boston in that they've got a lot of right-handed power bats, but better speed than Boston. And they also have better pitching than teams like Boston or Detroit. Fernando Valenzuela is really fun to pitch with. He has terrific movement in and out, gives you a great advantage against lefty-heavy teams. And they've got one of the game's few side armors in Steve Bedrosian as well. To be honest, the NL All-Stars are so good that maybe it's a little bit cheap to use them if you're playing with your friends. Although a good RBI player should win with a bad team against a bad RBI player, even with a team like the NL All-Stars. But if you're really good at RBI baseball, you probably shouldn't be using the NL All-Stars. It's a bit unsporting. But it sounds like a good way to handicap a game against your buddy who really sucks. I like that. How about uh, Santiago as a player? Well, I have to admit that in preparing for this episode, I did not play 34 consecutive games of RBI baseball (laughs) to see that he could maintain his hitting streak. At least not at this point in my life. Maybe as a child, I would have. He is the number three hitter for the NL All-Stars. My lasting memories of him, it's interesting, they're not really from RBI baseball. It's the great name. Benito Santiago sounds like Inigo Montoya. Just rolls off the tongue. It's got a great rhythm to it. And then also the famous SI cover of Benito Santiago kind of staring up into the camera with his mask off. In RBI baseball, he's the number three hitter for the National League All-Stars, and that might be the game's best lineup, especially if you have to make some substitutions. But he's not a great player. He's got average power, kind of surprising speed. He actually has the same speed rating in the game as Ryan Sandberg and Kirby Puckett and Terry Pendleton. This makes sense. He had 21 stolen bases as a rookie in 1987. One thing with him is that he's a righty in a lineup with a ton of righties. So if you're trying to get more left-handed batting in, he's potentially a candidate for substitution. And overall, how would you say he ranks among players? So there's an online rating um, of RBI baseball players. They have an algorithm they feed in, the speed rates, the contact rates, the power into. He ranks 63rd out of 120 batters. So that's pretty much the definition of average. So do you keep him in the lineup or do you sub him right away? It really depends. The NL All-Stars, it's a matter of math. They have three players that you need to get in your lineup. Dale Murphy, Pedro Guerrero, and Tony Gwynn all start on the bench. They have the fourth that you can sub in, and the great John Kruk. They have two hitters that you absolutely need to take out of the lineup in Andres Galarraga and somehow El Pedrique is an NL All-Star in RBI baseball. So you know you're going to take those two guys out, and then you've got Sandberg hitting second, and you've got Santiago hitting third. It may be the sort of thing where you play it by ear, see how the first inning goes, and decide who you want to swap out from there. Santiago is a little bit better player than Ryan Sandberg is. They have the same speed, but Santiago has a little bit better power. If he's in the number eight spot, it's certainly easier to leave him in. But as the number three hitter, if you've got a couple of men on base, maybe at that point you swap in a Dale Murphy or a Tony Gwynn. 
With Santiago and Gwyn and John Kruk all on this all-star team, it's a wonder that the Padres only won 67 games in 1987. It's a pretty Padre-heavy all-star team. Yes, and it's also an El Pedrique-heavy all-star team, which is something that certainly is a little bit surprising to users of RBI Baseball, thinking all the great players from all-star teams in the 1980s, and here comes Big Al. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, th- this has now been an, an Al Pedrique-heavy episode of the 1988 Tops podcast, and for that we are very grateful. So thanks again, Brian, for the RBI Corner. Thanks, guys. Always wonderful to be here. And we're back from the RBI corner, picking things up in 1988. The next few years, Santiago is actually one of the better defensive catchers in baseball. He won his first gold glove in 1988. He caught 45% of base dealers, but his hitting starts to drop off a little bit. Yeah, the next couple seasons, he hit 248 in 1988, so 52-point drop from his 87 season and then 236 in 89 but he did make his first all-star game appearance in 1989 and he won another gold glove for a Padres team that won 89 games and finished second in the NL West. 1990 he's named to another all-star game but he was injured so he wasn't able to play. He won another gold glove and a silver slugger the third of each of those. He got MVP votes which is kind of strange because he was fine but he only played in 100 games for a team that finished 12 games under 500. Prior to the 1991 season, he was trying to get a new contract, a four-year deal worth $11 million, and instead he was offered a one-year deal worth $1.65 million, and he went to arbitration and lost, and said he would leave San Diego the first chance he got in free agency. At this point, he also changed his number from 9 to 09. (laughs) <laughs> and we've seen Jeffrey Leonard had zero zero, but I don't know that I've ever seen a player who has a zero and then a number other than zero as the second number. He said that he did this because people would ask him what his number was because they couldn't see it through his catcher's gear and the strap that was on the back of his chest protector. It's a weird explanation, but it does kind of make sense. And you can clearly see when the line of the chest protector goes down the center of his back, you see a zero and a nine rather than a nine with a line through it. It's a weird explanation, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's just not generally how numbers work, but hey, you you do you. You do you, Benito. In later years, he was number 18 in 91-92 with the Padres, and then in 93-94 and 94 with the Marlins. He's number 09. But with that number change, he went out and earned another starting spot in the All-Star game, hitting 267, 17 home runs, a career-high 87 RBIs. This time he wins his arbitration after that season. 92 makes his fourth All-Star game, but the Padres had indicated by this point that they didn't want to keep this team together. Benito had said he was going to go his own way once he got to free agency because he didn't like the way that he was treated. So by the middle of the next season, the Padres have replaced more than half of their starting lineup. They trade away Tony Fernandez, Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield. Benito would go into free agency and sign with the Florida Marlins. Later in his career, he'd say, I should have never left the Padres. San Diego was where I was happiest and with the most success. Yeah, he ends up bouncing around for more than a decade 
And when we looked, David, in the research for this episode, just looking at the extent of his career, there's so many teams he played with that we just forgot about. <laughs> like, did not realize because he was there for such short time. So the first stop is Florida. He hits the first home run in Marlins history. That's, that's a big accomplishment. But in the two seasons in Miami, he was good behind the plate defensively, but not setting the world on fire on offense. And then from 95 till through 2000, he plays for the Reds, for the Phillies, for Toronto, for the Cubs, and then back to the Reds. With Cincy, he played in the playoffs for the first time in 1995. He hit 333 in the NLDS versus the Dodgers, but ultimately Cincinnati lost to Atlanta in the NLCS. In Philly, he hit a career-high 30 home runs in 1996, including the first regular season Grand Slam given up by Greg Maddox. But he was granted free agency at the end of that season in which he hit 30 home runs. He also had some injuries during this time that limited his playing time. One of the more impressive stats that he put up was in January of 1998 in the offseason when he was driving his Ferrari in Fort Lauderdale between 70 and 90 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. That's a miles-per-hour above replacement of, I believe, 55. Not safe driving, and he lost control of the car, hit a bump, went airborne, crashing into a tree. He suffered some pretty serious head injuries and cuts to his face. His injuries limited him to only 15 games in 1998 for the Blue Jays. And after that season, he was released. He did come back to play in 100 games for the Cubs in 1999 and 89 games for the Reds in 2000. And then at this point, he's 36 years old. His career looks like it's nearly over. And he signs as a backup for the Giants. He ended up starting by the end of that season, playing 133 games, and along with pitcher Mark Gardner, was awarded the Willie Mack Award in honor of their being the most inspirational players on the team. He's one of many players that we've talked about, David, where, you know, in their mid-30s, they're like, we really should hang it up, and then get a strange second wind that seems to come from nowhere. I mean, come from nowhere in San Francisco in the early 2000s. you know, we'll, we may get to an explanation for that later on, but in 2002, he had a pretty spectacular return to form, making his first All-Star game since 1992, played in 126 games, hit 16 home runs, drove in 74 runs, and he played in that ill-fated 2002 All-Star game. He made the last out of the game, but then because the game was tied and the teams ran out of pitchers, they just called the game. <laughs> And in that season, the Giants make the playoffs, and Benito was really good. Yeah, the Giants end up beating Atlanta in the division series. Benito hits two home runs in the NLCS against St. Louis. He had six RBIs. He was named the series' most valuable player, and the Giants win in five games to go to the World Series. So in the World Series, Santiago hits only 231, but does contribute five RBIs. Unfortunately for the Giants... They lose to the Anaheim Angels in seven games. He played one more season with San Francisco, uh, appearing in 108 games, still playing decently at age 38, 279, 11 home runs. He's released after that season, plays 49 games for Kansas City before breaking his hand on a hit-by-pitch, and attempted to keep playing at age 40 with Pittsburgh, but only appeared in six games. He then... Signed briefly with the Mets and played for their AAA team, 
played some winter ball in the hopes that he could catch on somewhere before calling it quits as a free agent. So closing the book on Benito Santiago's career, he had 1,830 hits and a 263 batting average. He had 217 home runs and had 920 RBIs. And his career fielding percentage was 987. He was a rookie of the year, five-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slugger, and three-time Gold Glove winner. And in true Mark Simon fashion, David, we should ask who he loved to face and who he hated to face. He had his best results against Zane Smith. He went 13 for 31 with five home runs and a 1.487 OPS. And against Greg Maddox, who he hit the first Grand Slam that Maddox gave up, he had pretty decent success, a 289 average, six home runs. His worst was against Doug Drabeck. He went one for 31 against Doug Drabeck. So overall, a very long career and had some very good seasons. So you would think potential Hall of Fame candidate. But unfortunately, in 2007, something happened that probably derailed any chance of that. The Mitchell Report came out, and Santiago was named as a steroid user. In 2003, Mike Murphy, a clubhouse attendant for the Giants, was cleaning out Santiago's locker at the end of the season, and he found a sealed package of syringes. He takes the syringes to the training room, gives them to the Giants trainer, and the Giants trainer said he would take care of it. They also knew that Santiago was leaving at the end of the year, so they didn't really have much reason to to do much with it. Santiago said this was all part of a running joke that he had with Barry Bonds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he would put these in in Barry's locker as a joke. Right. Um, But the Mitchell Report also named Santiago as a Balco customer, and he was named in Game of Shadows, which in 2006 brought a lot of attention to Barry Bonds' performance-enhancing drug usage. And it was said that Santiago was, quote, taking the same stuff as Barry. He initially denied this usage, but in 2003, he admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs in a testimony to a grand jury, and that testimony was leaked to the San Francisco Chronicle. So he was an admitted user. And so that retirement starts out pretty rough, and that tainted his career going into Hall of Fame voting. He only got one vote for the Hall of Fame in 2011, but the Padres named him to the club's Hall of Fame in 2015. In checking Hall of Stats, his rating is only a 47, where over 100 should be needed to earn a call-up to the Hall of Fame. In looking back at Benito's stats, his best season was his rookie season. He was worth 3.4 wins above replacement that season, and his second season he was worth 3.1. Not spectacular seasons, not really even all-star quality seasons. Okay, Well, where is he now? Benito has a home in Florida. He's still involved in events with his former teams. He has a website that hasn't been updated in a while. If you want to buy benitoshop.com, you can get it for $3,895. He has four children, daughters Benny Beth and Aaliyah, and sons Benito Jr. and Benito Ivan. Benito Jr. is a professional basketball player in Puerto Rico. He also played in Mexico. Currently, he's with... uh, Vaqueros de Bayamon. And Benito Ivan was a catcher at University of Tennessee. In a 2016 article, he said he didn't have a great relationship with his dad. He said, it's, it's a tough relationship. I don't see him much. It's a tough topic to talk about. 
He's carried the name, but I've got to do something to live up to it. I feel like I've put in the work and everyone else has put in the work to where I am right now. I credit my mom's side of the family for that. So his son giving a lot of credit to his mom, not as much to his dad. Benito Ivan was drafted in the 34th round in 2018 by the Cardinals. He played catcher in rookie ball that year, but only hit 182. And there's no further record of, of his career on baseball reference. So, David, after looking into this card and this player who, during this time period, we were all talking about in 87, 88, 89, now how do we feel about him? Benito had four cards in this set. That's huge. And one of those is a record breaker. He's a rookie. He's an all-star. He's a rookie of the year. The sky is the limit. What a year for Benito Santiago. And he was one of the better catchers of the late 80s, early 90s. But I was kind of surprised at his numbers. They weren't that impressive in hindsight. He struck out a fair amount and he never walked. He never really hit for power except that one season. His highest wins above replacement season was 3.4. But he played for 20 years. And maybe some of that's chemically enhanced. But also some of it is the determination of a guy who could have been orphaned at three months old and took every opportunity that he could get to get out of his situation. Early in his career, he went back to Puerto Rico with Bill Plaschke, and he told his story as they drove around, and they drove past a field full of farm workers, and he said, do you see those guys out there picking tomatoes and watermelons? That used to be me, and that would be me today. And he used his athleticism and his ingenuity in his defensive play Throwing out catchers from his knees was kind of an unheard of thing. And he played a position that when he was first given the opportunity, it was because nobody else wanted to play it. And he didn't even want to play it. But he seized that opportunity. We haven't really gotten into performance-enhancing drugs here much. I don't think that they changed my view of Benito because it happened so late in his career. I have a generally pretty cynical view of baseball in the mid-90s and early 2000s, and I assume everyone was juiced. And we try to be sympathetic, and I have some sympathy here for Benito. This is a guy who had terrible injuries, had played catcher for Lord only knows how long, done what kind of damage to his knees, and it it seems almost like survival instinct for an older player trying to maintain his spot in a very competitive field. And for that reason, I I don't begrudge him, particularly in that environment of trying to extend out what's a very short lifespan, uh, the life of a baseball player. I think that's well said. It's a very complicated subject. As a fan of lots of different sports, I find it very complicated as well because all athletes are trying to gain an advantage in whatever way they can. And rules are set up and sometimes rules are very confusing. When it comes to substances, when it comes to tactics and techniques, what one person calls getting an edge, someone else calls cheating. And it's just a very confusing thing. We've seen this year with the Olympics, Olympic athletes being banned for marijuana usage, for allegedly ingredients in a burrito, triggering a drug marker. In cycling, in running, in every sport, we've seen all kinds of things like this. And it is just a very complicated thing. So like you, I have sympathy for athletes who are trying to keep going 
to keep playing and to get an advantage so that they can keep going in this career in this thing that they're good at that very few people in the world are are good at. It's a complicated thing that I hope that we continue to go into with these other athletes and get more of their stories as we go. Matt, I'm I'm sure that it's going to come up again. Uh, (laughs) Looking at some of these cards, particularly other rookie cards in this set, there are some, Mm -hmm. some big names in there. And not to totally downplay that Benito admitted to using human growth hormone, but just to say that I have some sympathy there. Yeah, same here. In the meantime, we... Welcome any comments and views that listeners have about the subject. You can find us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. And if you're using Tony Montana as your language tutor, we would really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.